I can't hear anyone now. Something weird's just happened. Uh oh. I'm only joking. It's because you pressed record, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Ah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> Fuck yeah. He's off. Uh, okay. <laughs> you, Alan, you're going to fit in just fine with that crap sense of humour. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Meads, author of Arcade Britannia, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as always with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. I'm the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic, Tony Temple. Hi. For this episode, we speak with Dr. Alan Meads. Alan teaches the undergraduate and postgraduate game design courses at Canterbury Christchurch University, and is the author of the rather brilliant Arcade Britannia, published by MIT Press. After dedicating so many episodes of the show to the mythic American arcade of the late 70s and early 80s, in some ways perhaps more a figment of our collective imagination than we might care to admit, it was quite wonderful having Alan provide a much wider historical context of the amusement arcade, actually dating back hundreds of years, and all via a uniquely British lens. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the episodes of the show and all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. And if you're feeling generous, you can support us at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash tdepodcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Alan, welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. It's a pleasure to have you on the show and for us to finally be able to talk about British video game arcade history in some detail. Um, so now it says here that you teach the undergraduate and postgraduate game design courses at Canterbury Christchurch University here in the UK, which is something of a mouthful, um, but I don't doubt it for a minute. Um, so we were wondering, how does your current occupation relate to your own experiences as a young man frequenting British seaside arcades? Is it just a happy coincidence or have you arrived at your job by design? No, I'm actually a criminal mastermind and I've been planning this, Tony, for uh, for decades and decades. No, it was it was purely by chance, really. So uh, I grew up in Broadstairs, so uh, Edwardian seaside town mm. on the southeast coast of England. And uh, my mother and father had a, a guest house and we had foreign students there all the time. And essentially... Uh, my mum and dad were never around and they said, yeah, you can go down to the arcade or you can go fishing or you can go down the beach. So what I'd do is I'd tell my parents that I'd go fishing, I'd get the money for the bait and I'd go down the arcade. <laughs> and um, and really my, uh, my, yeah, my lifelong love of arcades and video games started there. Uh, and, and then I really fell into a job in, in higher education and I very slowly moved my research and my interests closer and closer towards that stuff that I cared about. So 
I went from being a graphic designer to a game designer to a games researcher to a supposed uh, games historian now, I guess. Oh, fantastic. Well, that, that, that's great. It's interesting your story there about um, the stories you told your parents. I bet all of us have got a story along those lines of how we managed to wangle more time in the arcade than we than we probably should have done. Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about your your early interactions with um, specifically classic video gaming in in the arcades. Yeah. So, um, kind of my well, I, I had I've got an older sister, and of course, if you've got an older sister in a seaside resort, and she hangs around the arcades. You're kind of golden, really. So, I, from the age of about six or seven. I was down the arcade almost all the time at the weekend and, you know, sometimes in the afternoons. Um, well, it's probably from about 1986, 1987 that I really started frequenting the arcades mm-hmm. in, a, in a fairly uh, kind of engaged way. And for me, it was the big games like, you know, OutRun was probably one of the most mind-blowing games for me. There was actually one um, afternoon on the way home from school that, uh, that there was someone driving a Ferrari. It was some chap from London who worked in, in finance and he borrowed a Ferrari from one of his friends. He told us this. And we got to sit in, my friend and I got to sit in this Ferrari just because it was amazing. And then we walked down to the arcade and then played Outrun, just our, our heads kind of completely fizzing because it was um, <laughs> kind of an unreal experience. So that, you know, that, that mix of almost kind of Californian um, driving and sun and then the kind of grey British driving rain and seaside nonsense. So I got loads of really kind of... Um, strong emotive feelings about British arcades and and video games but really there were there were all kinds of games there so yeah we had we had Tron we had Road Blasters uh you know we had Final Fight later on we had Street Fighter 2 mm-hmm. and I, I used to like things like um a Time Pilot as well Time Pilot was one of my favorite games but um it, it's a, a strange old mix because my sister was there and so she would introduce me to games like R-Type or Nemesis and um Show me how to play them, really. Yeah, interesting. You would, that, that sort of pivotal date of the mid '80s, where we were sort of moving away from the uh, what we would call the the you know sort of classic golden titles onto stuff which was trying to push the boundaries a little bit more. So it's kind of nice that you arrived at, at that sort of crossover point of, of still being able to experience presumably the odd d- defender here and there, but also moving on to the to the Street Fighters and the R-Types and such. Yeah, the, the classic golden games were there at the, at the back of the arcade, up on the top raised bit. Right. So we'd have all of those on Tempe play. And, you know, they, they were they were fantastic. But I was in the arcade the day that, um, well, the, the afternoon that uh, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles turned up the Konami okay. four player yep. and I was the first pl- person to play it in our, our arcade it was unwrapped and they gave me some free credit so Howard the arcade manager let me play on it to test it out so you know for me that was one of the one of the really important games simply because of the collaborative play that you could get yeah interesting um so it's probably fair to say that your life experiences as they relate to video gaming put you in good stead to write your book Arcade Britannia which uh, tells the social history of the British amusement arcade over the years. Why did you want to tell this story? Well, it's a strange question, really, because I, I never wanted to tell this story to begin with. Um, okay. <laughs> so I, I did a PhD before this. and My, my PhD, I spent five years um, doing an, an, an ethnography of people hacking and glitching and breaking games. So I, I'm I'm really interested in the way that people play Mm. and I'm interested in transgressive play. So ways that people play that break the rules. And after I did the PhD, I started thinking about 
growing up in the arcades and I started thinking about the ways that I played in the arcades and the way that we grew up in the arcades. So British arcades as a site that you might learn how to smoke or there might be hard kids there or there might be girls that you fancy or there might be dodgy people that you'd stay away from. Mm. And I thought it would be quite interesting to try and tell the stories of the arcade. And I interviewed quite a few people. I think I, you know, I spoke to yourself many moons ago about this. And the, the kind of the embarrassing thing was that when I compiled lots of these stories, they became pretty dull. Um, for most people, the, the stories about playing games were just, oh, I really loved that game or I was really good at that game or someone beat me up when I was playing that game. And, and there were just relatively few colourful stories beyond that. Right. And so what happened was after a while, I started wondering, well, we, we know about those stories, but what about the other stories? A simple question is, how did the arcade work? How was it operated? Where did the games come from? Who ran them? And I, I pretty much, um, well, I fairly quickly realised that people didn't really know the answers to that because arcade owners tended to be relatively... Um, uh, I don't know, not reclusive, but they weren't very keen initially to share their stories because of how they'd been treated in the past. Right. So so that, that was the pathway to writing that book. It, it, it wasn't something I intended to do originally, but it was something that I found that I had to do once I... Um, I realised there wasn't something like that. Yeah, and I think your final point there really hits the nail on the head for me, having read your book. I think much of the narrative that is out there around arcade gaming is really told through an American lens, and 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 indeed our you know UK based podcast is 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 broadly testament to that. I think. Um, so, how did you go about finding enough source material and content? Yeah, well, I. I I took two different routes. So these aren't exactly the normal routes that you'd take doing an academic study. And so I'm 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 pretty thrilled that MIT Press, so I, you know, I, I consider MIT Press to be one of the very best academic publishers going. I'm I'm thrilled that they they kind of went along with this mm. because what I did was I, I started off instead of reaching out and trying to interview people using kind of standard academic um, methods, instead I decided to make a load of comics. And that might sound completely counterintuitive, but the thing is that many of the people that I wanted to talk to weren't really interested in talking to academics. They'd either been burnt before or they didn't see the point or they were suspicious. And um, wh what I did was I made comics that spoke about my love of the arcade and that told people's stories of the arcade. And I printed loads of them. Like These were called arcade tales. You know, There were PDFs of them floating around. But essentially, these different stories were printed and shared and they just... They found their ways into the hands of people that cared about arcades and slowly, very slowly, people involved in the industry saw them. And then instead of me having to chase them, very strangely, they started to chase me. So um, a fantastic person called uh, Phil Silver, who was the head of compliance for BACTA, the British Arcade uh, British Amusement Catering Trade Association, the Arcade Trade Association, reached out, started putting me in contact with other arcade owners and, and really the movers and shakers of the the industry and the um, the organisation. And, 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 and once I effectively got that blessing, all of a sudden people came forward and we, we, we ran interviews and things like that. So I got lots of kind of really rich and really informed um, interview content. I was very fortunate that also... Where I live, down the southeast of England, um, two miles away is Ramsgate, and that's where Cromptons were based. So Cromptons who invented the, the penny pusher. Now, right. Cromptons effectively created a whole industry around them. So this neck of the woods is where lots and lots of people involved in the trade 
live. Sure. So, so I found out there were lots of people to interview almost on my doorstep. And then the the, the, the kind of the, the other route um, was that through one of these contacts and through years of negotiation and kind of uh, random phone calls I'd get on Boxing Day and have, have an hour-long or a two-hour-long chat with a uh, an arcade um, industry pioneer who lives in America. Eventually, we, we discussed an archive, a digital archive of coin slot newspapers, and uh, I, I purchased it for, well, a fair chunk of money, but it, it was access to um, content that I couldn't find any other way. And really, by using the archive sources from uh, 40 years of weekly trade newspapers and the interviews that I did and then the interviews that I continued to do, I kind of wove the story between those those kind of two sources. So comics and a massive archive bought from a geezer in America. That's amazing. I, just, I mean, my next question was, was it difficult to get industry people to talk to you? And, and it sort of sounds like you, you, whether it was or it wasn't, you actually found a, 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 a rather unique solution to, to address the issue. Yeah, it was pretty strange. So after a while, people would say, oh, no, we, we know all about your work. We know what you've done. And I don't know whether they were just being polite, but I, I kind of got the impression that um, there was curiosity. So the, the British arcade industry has been in trouble almost all the time. And we're talking about taxation or uh, critical kind of popular reception. So they have lots of issues with their their image and the way that they're treated and taxed by the government. Now, some people would say that there are legitimate reasons to treat the industry in that way. And others like me, who is a, a fan of, of the industry, would say, say differently. So I, I think that actually uh, my kind of research was seen as useful in the sense that it could be used to either argue against the prevailing government intervention. And at, at the time that um, the industry reached out to me, it was the height of the FOBTs, the fixed odds betting terminal kind of issue, which has got yeah. absolutely nothing to do with arcades, but mm. the popular discourse thought that it was. So for people that don't know, fixed odds betting terminals were machines that were based in betting shops that look like fruit machines or even look like um, uh, video games where you can bet and wager huge amounts of money in a short period of time. And, and these really ruined people that were uh, addicted to gambling and, and just created colossal imbalances and made people very, very poor and caused lots of problems. And the arcade industry was routinely being blamed for something that actually took money away from them mm. and uh, was nothing to do with them. And so I, I think that maybe the industry was willing to take a punt with what I was doing because they could see I was not a threat and maybe I could contribute to a positive narrative about um, about the arcade. But maybe I've just got a big head. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention about the, the, how everything gets sort of swept under the title of arcade. I um, I met a guy once and we got talking and I told him what my hobby was, which obviously, you know, restoration of classic arcade video games. And then um, I met him again in another social situation and he um, literally stopped the room and there was probably about 50 people in there to introduce me, which was the right thing to do. But he introduced me as someone who played fruit machines, like in in a, in a room full of fifty people, and you could just see the sort of look on these people's faces of this guy's addicted to fruit machines. And it's like, uh, no, I'm not into fruit machines. It's a totally different thing. So I think you're right. There is a um, there is a sort of a broad brush which is uh, you know used to um, lump a whole load of amusement machines under the same heading. But but fruit machines are really important, aren't they? So I. Even as a even as a child, I would play fruit machines alongside playing penny mm. pushers, alongside playing uh, video games. So, for for me, the experience of the arcade was that 
totality. Yes. And I, I know a lot of people have kind of totally legitimate um, reasons why they think that low-stakes gambling is bad or they're opposed to fruit machines. But from my from my experience, there was the pleasure of playing all of these things. And frankly, the British Amusement Arcade wouldn't exist without the backbone of that low-stakes gambling. So it's very true. Um, I, 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 I see fruit machines and gambling is really key to the experience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as opposed to in isolation yeah. in a in a in the corner of a betting shop or something. If, I mean uh, this is um probably a slightly um unfair question to ask at this early stage, but <laughs> of all of the of all of the facts and um knowledge that you managed to unearth, what was the can you give us like just just one really surprising um nugget of information that you discovered? So well, it's it's tricky because I know that you're expert, so I, I know that you're probably fully aware of this. But um, <laughs> I'm an expert in nothing. Yeah, me too. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just, just to, a, um, on the record. I can agree. <laughs> yeah, we're just three idiots with microphones. Well, that makes four then. That's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're in good company then. Well, we'll bumble through it. So, so for me, the the whole thing about um, you know the, the pit, the pit. So those of you who don't know, uh, the pit was a a video game, an arcade video game designed by uh, Andy Walker, a chap called Andy Walker in Bridlington. So a- Andy Walker worked for um, GCHQ, so essentially British, um, well, it's not quite secret service, but British intelligence agency. He then decided that he wanted to use computers that he was seeing for intercepting kind of uh, Russian transmissions. He, w- he wanted to use them to make games. No one was interested in doing that. So he decided to uh, make a game, made a, a, a very good video game on a kitchen table in Bridlington in his cafe. And that then that that game was shown at, uh, I think it was um, the Olympia trade show. Mm-hmm. And it was copied by, well, it was allegedly copied by uh, Japanese um, designers and became Dig Dug. And then the court case attached to that. Now, I know that lots of people may have already been aware of that, but that this idea of a, a video game that I'm really fully aware of and I know kind of you know we've all played has its origins in Bridlington that it's tied in with British culture it was it, it was named the pit after Quatermass and the pit this kind of iconic 1950s sci-fi um British sci-fi well it's not even a sci-fi it's science fiction kind of horror thing but this idea of little old Britain some seaside cafe in a sleepy town that then becomes exported out to Japan through nefarious methods and then becomes this enormous iconic video game. So if we're thinking about the kind of idea of Tron and the iconic arcade, Dig Dug is right there. Right. And yet we can trace its history back to Bridlington and some really British stuff. So for yeah. me, that was kind of a kind of a, a blown head moment. It's just for sure how how international the trade was, and and also kind of how how local it was in another sense. These are people that, well, for instance, going off on tangent now again, the, the idea that two miles away from me was the guy who um, negotiated. Uh, the purchase of all the Star Wars cabinets that came into the UK and, and people that made really important decisions about things that influenced my childhood that I was just completely unaware of. So that probably doesn't answer the question, but I was routinely kind of flabbergasted just by things that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, Andy's story, Andy Walker's story is a fascinating one. I mean, just a just a footnote to that. Um, you can catch our interview with Andy Walker in episode eight 
just for our listeners if they're interested in, in picking up on that. Did, did, did Andy say about the um, the Bandai machine? Yes, he did. It could have been a handheld. It would have been a millionaire. Well, it, it was a handheld. Yeah, but he, he said that they mocked it up and he's like, it's going into production. You know, you're going to get, I think he said, a dollar a machine and we're only going to make three million. Oh, my God. And then they just pulled it. But they That's didn't, because I've got one upstairs. Well, you must have one of the very few. Well, he probably needs some money off Bandai then. Well, that, like, it, yeah, said, that's yeah. absolutely it. UOM. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he said they made some prototypes and then they didn't then, yeah, then they didn't then put it into full production. So, wow, amazing. So I, I bought it. I was going to send it up to him. And we, we, you know, I, I need to go and see him up in Bridlington and get him to play it properly. But, um, yeah, he, he told me the same thing, that it, it didn't exist, that it never it never happened. And, and then I said, well, I've, I've got one. I've got Here's one. some photos of it. <laughs> and it, it even says, it even I'll says um, AWC-LEC on the, uh, on the really? cover. Yeah. That was pretty, do you think that is just the ones that they, you know, mocked up before? Or, or did it, did they actually sell millions and just never pay it? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bet you've made his day with that. Um, Alan, we're going to get on to ask you about the kind of games that were in arcades, but I really want to ask you about the arcades as physical spaces, like institutions even. And in your book, you say that you were an arcade local. So yeah. do you see arcades as kind of community spaces, almost like pubs? I was picking up that idea of the word of a local, almost like pubs for kids. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, what, what can I say? Pubs for kids. Well, they 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 kind of were, but they. Um, so let me sorry, let me just frame that again. So, yeah, I see the arcade as, or at least the, the historic arcade, the arcade that I understood growing up was very much territorial. In the same right. way that you might have a local pub, and it's the place where you feel comfortable and safe. But as an adolescent, it also had all the trappings of if I go into that arcade over in Margate. There's a chance I might get beaten up because, um, or someone will push me out of the way and steal my credits. So there was a little bit of that kind of territoriality. So by local, I meant that uh, I had some some claim of ownership of the space. So I suppose mm-hmm. it, it is a bit like a pub there, but it it also wasn't just for kids. Now, yes. at, at times I was oblivious to it, but other times I I, I wasn't. So you, so you'd see things like the the, the gamblers. You'd always see the older guys that would be there playing on the fruit machines. But then when I look at the photos that we've got of arcades, there was also the the elderly visitors who quite often would play in the bingo machines or the oh, pushers. Yeah. And, and so the arcade did play a social role. Now, I think as an adolescent or as a teenager, I was more interested in watching out for being punched or maybe pinching some cigarettes off well, my sister. But but I, I think that when, when you talk to arcade owners, that their their view was that they played a very clear social role and, and actually mm. were much more paternalistic or supportive of the communities than perhaps we picked up as as sweaty little loiks. That's the interesting point. People often, I mean, I, I think I'm vaguely your age because I was hanging out in arcades in the late 70s into the 80s, is that you would... What I've looked back and realised is that they were broadly unsupervised space that kids and teenagers could hang around in, often for hours and hours. And you sort of allude to the fact that you sort of made up your own sort of social rules, what was acceptable. And this was negotiated broadly kind of amongst the kids themselves. So do you think it was actually kind of an important rite of passage that perhaps kids don't get now? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I perceived it as that. 
I perceived it exactly as that, that we were making the rules and that we were in charge. But I, I think that having now spoken to lots and lots of arcade owners, including some of the owners of the arcades that I would frequent, <laughs> we just didn't really catch on what was going on. So yeah, it, it, you'd say it was unsupervised. I would say actually in a more kind of educational context, it's probably uh, semi-supervised. Uh, so I, I think the, so, so for instance, I was told that uh, one of the arcades would have a daily visit by um, a policeman or, or kind of a, a police special who would talk about all the things that were going on. It, it was part of the, the social contract that the arcade owner would be in the loop. They would know what kids were in trouble, what kids to watch out for and things like that. And I've also heard of stories of the arcade owners intervening where there's a, a problem. And um, I'm not saying kind of these are moral guardians or custodians <laughs> of the peace, but no. but, but <laughs> seeing themselves as, as having a social role. And I think it's partly because of their historic pariah status as well. So mm. I, I think that if you're working in a trade that is seen so negatively and is subject to quite stringent um, yeah. kind of... Absolutely, quite stringent legislation that um, you then, you, well, you become more civic-minded. So, yeah, we thought it was unsupervised, but, but actually, it, it was supervised on to a much greater degree. I think with, because there were so many arcades across the UK, is even though each one had their own individual character, you ended up recognising similar characters. So there'd always be the, the guy who looked bored in the little kiosk, giving out change, <laughs> usually smoking, reading the Sunday sport, invariably called Dave. Yeah. Right? And then there'd be like the, the kid that was coming around, you know, pestering you for 10p and all that. So when you talk to people, did you see these same sort of characters emerging in different arcades across the country? Yeah, totally, totally. But I, I wonder if they were ever really to do with the arcade. I, I wonder if, <laughs> if you'd gone to a youth club, if you'd gone to a park, uh, if you'd gone to a chip shop, you just would have seen the same kind of demographics. I, I wonder if it's more a, a statement about 1970s, 1980s, probably working class Britain than, yeah. than anything else. Yeah, how beautifully put. Now, our podcast focuses on the golden age of arcades. That's in the, the title, if you like. Um, and for us, when we say the golden age of arcades, we very specifically mean around video games. So the kind of 70s into the 80s and a little bit into the, into the 90s. But hang on, your book goes back hundreds of years, right? <laughs> so I wondered if you could give us a little flavour of the other golden ages of arcades when they were run perhaps as part of fairs or sideshows or kind of amusement. I just wondered, you know, long before Pong and Tank arrived, give us a flavour of those other ages of the arcade. Well, yeah, I, I would say that the arcade became a thing of popular... Uh, leisure in the late 1800s, but I'm holding in my hand a new book by Nick Costa. So Nick Costa, who used to uh, uh, write for Coin Slot, he's the oh. um, the author of uh, Automatic Pleasures, and uh, his latest book, Penny in the Slot, kind of shifts the first arcade back to the mid 1800s. Wow. And um, okay. so yeah, arcades did exist, but that you know that's a 
just a quick plug for Nick's excellent oh, yeah. book. But um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. What? What? I, yeah. What, what do you want me to say? Let, let's let's think this one through. So the the early history of the arcade within Britain, we have to go right back to. Um, well, where should we go to? Let's go to William the Conqueror. What the Why hell? Not? <laughs> let's go back a thousand years. Why not? Yeah. Go for it. Right. So it, what I'm getting at is that uh, William Conqueror set up a or William the Conqueror or whoever that was. That they guy, set up a Norman. I think his name was. His middle name was Norman. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's that's who we'll go for. But um, uh, essentially what we had was all throughout uh, the United Kingdom, we we had um, fairgrounds and we had traveling showmen that supported these fairgrounds. The idea was if you lived in the middle of nowhere, a traveling fair would also become a, um, there'd be traders and things like that. So the idea of if you're in an agricultural hamlet, the town, the sorry, the traveling fair that we might might come and visit you twice a year would be a, a really important point in the course, cultural yeah. calendar, and that part of this would have entertainment. So you might have a menagerie, you might have um, a kind of gymnasts and things like that. But the idea is there'll be a spectacle. Now, as that fast forwards into the 1700s, the 1800s, certainly, we get large machines such as um, kind of carousels and steam-driven uh, entertainments. Yeah, yeah. And that means you need a lot of people to transport these and put them up. But once they're put up and running, you don't need you don't need many people to run them. Right. So you had a surplus of um, labor, and the best thing to do with that labor is to give them sideshows to look after. And quite often, sideshows would be hoopla and kind of popping things and knocking coconut shies and things like that. But as we move into the later eighteen hundreds, we also get coin operated machinery. And and so what happens is that coin-operated entertainments really become popular in, well, all of Northern Europe through these um, traveling showmen. Now, in the UK, that extends. So what happens is that in the winter, um, well, in the summer, you'd be going around taking your fairground to the different sites that you've got, the different uh, the f- different fairgrounds that you can go to. And then in the winter, when it's all wet and gross and cold, mm-hmm. you'll hole up somewhere probably at the seaside because the rents will be cheap and you'll put all your kit into a uh maybe in a theater or something like that you'll fix some of it and if anyone comes past you'll say yeah you can come and see someone juggling or play something pay us a bit of money and that's called a gaff shop right Uh, and these gaff shops essentially become the um the precursor or the prototype to the amusement arcade and then if we move through to the Second World War, after the Second World War, the fairgrounds start being shut down and redeveloped for kind of urban regeneration programs. And this community of traveling showmen, they start getting a little bit concerned and they say, well, maybe it's time to stop traveling. Maybe we should become sand dancers, which is a, a non, oh. uh, non-derogatory <laughs> term for people that have decided to stop moving around and stay still. And wow. effectively, they set up they set up arcades. So can I just say, what an incredible potted history of a thousand years. Of yeah. a, um, it's interesting, of course, fairs are still a big part. I, I'm speaking to you from Nottingham. And yeah. Goose Fair is, you know, still one of, I think, the biggest travelling fairs Absolutely. in the country. So it's still part of that. So I, this kind of fits in. The fact is that in, in Britain, we'd already got this very long tradition that arcade machines, when Space Invasion and Pong and that arrived, they were arriving into something that already existed. Now, I love your point about the mythic arcade. So you point out that this idea of a place that's dark, neon lit, 
populated by boys, mainly wearing heavy metal T-shirts. Uh, right. Uh, but the act- And that's kind of based on this North American idea. In fact, I think you're sometimes questioning whether that was actually the North American experience. Yeah. But, but certainly in Britain, and anyone who's listened to this programme who is British will remember the arcades was, yes, there was arcade machines as, as we know them, your space invaders and your ponds, but they were right next to penny pushers and loads of fruit machines and grannies playing. There's always grannies yep. playing the old. So I'm, I want you to give us a sense of what made British arcades so different from this, from elsewhere, particularly America. Oh, great question. Well, again, we have to go back in time for this one. And we have to talk about some, uh, I don't know, really deeply British proclivities as well. <laughs> so, um, well, we, we quite like a flutter. <laughs> We're a gambling nation. Yeah, art, well, yeah. this is the thing. Yeah, you might want to, sorry to mm. you might want to kind of uh, position that for our American um, uh, uh, audience. Yeah. They like a bet. Okay, yeah. no problem. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we quite like a flutter. And by that, I mean that we, we, like, we like to gamble. So... Um, basically, working class Brits. Well, no, it's not just working class Brits. Brits, people in Britain, have enjoyed gambling for um, centuries, and it's often been a point of significant tension. So, in the 1700s and the 1800s, there was uh, a great deal of concern about uh, working class people betting and gambling. There was a sense of from the um, I don't know the aristocratic or the in- intelligentsia that um, basically working class people were going to frit away all of their money because they couldn't control themselves. And and what happened Mm. was that um, gambling in Britain changed into, you've got things like horse racing, which is sophisticated, and that's what rich people do, and that's fine. And then poor people have this seedy kind of street betting, and maybe they use machines later on in time, and that's somehow disgusting and and horrible. And and what happened was that the the British government over time intervened and... um, introduced legislation to reduce kind of working class gambling, small stakes, dirty gambling, while still allowing people that have got lots of money that can buy the suits, that can go to the racetracks and things like that to continue their thing. And um, in the early 1900s, there was basically small stakes, street betting, you know, placing bets on things that are, um, you know, horse racing, no, horse racing kind of dog racing or small stakes betting was was completely made um, illegal but the 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 police became really concerned that it was largely unenforceable so from about 1907 till 1960 it was illegal to do this kind of low stakes gambling but the police let the the um, blind eye didn't they yeah yeah so so what happened was the police forces were told that they could show their discretion and enforce Hmm only when they felt that it was appropriate to do so. So this meant, say, in the 1920s, you and I could walk down to a greengrocer and there might be a curtain. And behind that curtain, there might be an American fruit machine that would pay out a jackpot (laughs) and would be illegal. But it would actually be okay to play it, sometimes even with a policeman there, if everything was okay. But, you know, two miles away in another town, there might be a policeman that wouldn't stand for any of this stuff and um, and it would get taken. But so th- this was this really peculiar situation. It meant that uh, mm. British people have often enjoyed gambling and seen gambling as, as kind of a slightly furtive pleasure. So it's something that we do that is fun. Yes. And then it happened even more so at the seaside. When the seasides became places for holiday and debauchery, mm. of course, uh, those kind of pleasures of it, went with them. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You bring the class element, yeah. which is something that's very, very British uh, there. Um, I'm going to pick up on the fact, just as a little aside, but, I was Paul, fascinated. Can I, can I just yes, get yes. to that? Because there's yes, an important sir. step that in 1960, uh, what happened was that the British government got so concerned that American gangsters were bringing over uh, uh, fruit machines and getting involved in this illegal gambling that they changed the law. In 1960, the, the British government changed the law to make low-stakes gambling legal, and it allowed anyone to gamble, including children. Yes. <laughs> but the trade-off was that it had lots and lots of legislation attached to it, so it was, was closely regulated. And what that meant was that these arcades that already existed everywhere could now legally put these gambling machines in, and there was a ready appetite from the British public. And it just meant that British arcades made shed loads of money just made loads and loads of money and it meant that when video games finally appeared the arcades were already fairly rich the traveling showman who'd moved into arcade trades had 20 30 40 years worth of income underneath them and it just meant that british arcades were resilient when video games came and when video games went that's that of course what, what a beautiful way of putting it um i just wanted to pick up i love that aside that in britain we let kids gamble i i love that um yeah. is that uh, i just want to ask you that that you know we look back very fondly at uh, arcades but of course, <laughs> some people see them as dens of iniquity. And in researching your, your book, I, I just wondered if you were ever surprised at some of the, um, well, maybe some of the ridiculous claims made by politicians and other moral leaders about how corrupting arcades were on the youth. Yeah, well, I, I, there, was, uh, uh, there was something called the AAAG, the Amusement Arcade Action Group, that became quite a powerful a lobbying movement in the UK and very nearly led to the end of video games in arcades. Really? Yeah, so they managed to resurrect a um, piece of legislation that had been introduced for cinemas. It said that every cinema had to be approved by a local council because of the risk of fires and, you know, imagine a fire sweeping through a town yeah. and, you know, burning a town down. So, So what would happen is that every cinema would require... Um, kind of licensing from the local council and you wouldn't be able to show films or show these kind of entertainments unless you got your license and I think it was in 1987 the amusement arcade action group managed to use a loophole within this definition of cinema to say that an arcade video game because it was a projection of animated oh. images constituted yeah. not a cinematic projection but a cinema and right. therefore was subject to this fire curtain rule, essentially. Right. And, so, and it went... <laughs> so they consider every machine, which of course would mean it was totally impractical to, to have an arcade then, if every machine had to be sort of treated as if it was a fire risk? Every, every machine was a cinema. And every, every <laughs> one of those machines could be approved or, or opposed by the council and the council could regulate how many machines were there. It came very, very close, very close to the wire. And so, yeah, amusement arcades have been blamed for all kinds of things. But let's, let's be honest, if they were um, spaces of, of limited kind of supervision, yeah, there, there would have been bad things that happened in some mm. arcades, certainly within arcades led by the, um, 
well, I'd say led by proprietors that weren't part of, of BACTA because BACTA mm. were quite a, a stringent or remain quite a stringent kind of uh, organization that require certain standards and expectations. Yeah. But yeah, in the, in the peak of the um, 1980s video game craze, if you and I decided to set up an arcade and we just filled it with machines and we didn't care who was there and what went on, yeah, I'm sure there would have been bad things going on. What and then, of course, you had the, uh, the Johnny Come Home issues with all the um, kind of child abuse in the in the center of um of london that was was a lot of the narrative was based around kind of prostitution in some of the arcades so so there was a, a television documentary in the 1970s that was really shocking it it told the story of um a runaway so the idea was that uh, a a young boy so a young teenage boy ran away from home from somewhere like uh, i don't know uh, somewhere up in the north a northern kind of working town and decided to go to the 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 bright lights of london and the idea was where they would go would be kind of piccadilly circus the idea of this is the beating heart the flashy part of london that also happened to have a number of arcades and this ends up with a a really a terrible tale of um, an adolescent boy running away, getting shelter with a um, kind of a, a protective, I think it was actually someone presenting as a vicar or something like that. And it leads to child abuse and a murder and a, a court case. And it's just a, a horrible seedy underbelly of, of effectively organized child abuse. And and one of the um, one of the pivotal moments is that apparently the arcades were a place where uh, rent boys and prostitutes would go to. And they would just wait in the arcades because it was warmer there, brighter there, and safer there than waiting on the streets. This is the kind of nuance that comes out in the the kind of interviews. But the kind of the headline thing was arcades are where prostitutes are and child abuse happens. It was just used again by, well, by the Amusement Arcade Action Group and people that were opposed to arcades that saw them as as insidious places, but they, they really weren't. Um, Alan, we do still have arcades over over in america we have wonderful places like fun spot and galloping ghost and here in in the uk we have arcade club and also Ar- arcade archive in Stroud, which i believe the ted dabney experience is actually appearing at in march just a <laughs> little plug there um so we can still play classic coin ops in an arcade setting but hang on alan are you going to point out that arcades now are not like they were in the past? In the past, they were somewhere with video games. You'd go and play the latest games, cutting edge, and kids would broadly hang out and supervise. Do you hey, think- that, that was only arcades for 15 years, though. Yeah, that's interesting. So was it just that little time? Is that yeah. that little time? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so my view is that arcades only had video games in them from, what, 1973? Really? To, well, let's... Let's be charitable. Let's say 1993, and then we just have a few mm. driving games and things like that. So what, wow, 20, 20 years, 25 years? And some of those <laughs> years were pretty patchy compared to a longer history of 100 years, 150 years. It's it's a flash in the pan. So if anything, we, we are skewing the arcade yet again and just thinking it's about video games. It wasn't. If A really um, representative history of the British Arcade or a view on it would be, we should be talking about penny pushers. We should be talking about fruit machines. We shouldn't be talking about video games. So just to well, throw that spanner in the yeah. works. Well, we've just invited you on a podcast talking <laughs> solely about video games. So thank you for putting that in context. Richie. Yeah, well, 
Alan, thank you. Um, I mean, let's let's kind of go from the macro to the micro and concentrate on that flash in the proverbial pan and talk about um, maybe 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 kind of uh, bring this back to video games per se. Um, our assumption is that Pong was basically the um, the genesis of the British video arcade industry, and obviously, um, in light of all that we've discussed, we 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 can we can argue that it not necessarily isn't. But as far as video games are concerned, I mean, first of all, is that right? And uh, or was it Space Invaders? And either way, can you know can you stick a pin in that calendar for us? And when did video arcade games really arrive in the UK? Yeah, well, you're right. Pong was the start. Well, it wasn't actually. Pong wasn't the start at all. Ping Pong right. was the start. Ping Pong, of course. Right. Okay. Yes. So Ping Pong was well. Uh, I feel like I'm stuck in a Little Britain sketch. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, ping pong. Ping pong was, uh, uh, well, how to explain this? So Pong, uh, Nolan Bushnell's Pong was the first video game to arrive in Britain. Yes. So it arrived at the trade show. It was seen by people at the, the trade shows up in um, Blackpool and in London. Or maybe it was just Blackpool that it was featured. I can't quite recall. But um, what what happened was that people were impressed by Pong but also slightly confused. So people didn't really know what they were seeing. Now, uh, mm. I don't know whether you've, in, in my book, I talk quite a lot about um, Michael Green. Uh, so Michael Green was, um, he, he worked for Associated Leisure. Associated Leisure was the, the largest arcade distributor. Yep. So they they distributed the um, all, all the different machines. So they had licenses with all the major manufacturers and, and were really, really powerful. And Michael Green was perhaps their most... Um, most famous and most successful uh, salesman. And Michael Green um, saw uh, Pong at the trade fair. He played it. He spoke with uh, Nolan Bushnell and he said it was a, a good game and he in- enjoyed it. And then he, he spoke to um, Gary Stern. Right. And Gary Stern from Stern Pinball said, everyone's going to start making these. In fact, I know a load of companies in America that are already going to start making these. Uh, here's the name of the factory that makes these boards. I suggest you get over to America and um, buy some because if you don't, someone else will. And so Michael Green um, got the money together. He flew over to the um, the factory that was based in Boston and he bought 300 boards. I think it was $150 each. And then he flew back panicking, thinking he'd made the worst decision of his life. Um, he, I should say, uh, at this point, he had actually been bankrolled by um, Marty Bromley. So Marty Bromley, was the chap who started Sega. When Sega were bought out by Gulf and Western in 1967, Martin Bromley had loads and loads of money and he wanted to get back into the trade. So he set up a company called Alka. He got Michael Green on board. And really Alka's mission, probably unofficially, was to make cheaper, better copies of everyone else's machines. So they did things like, um, I think it was Sega's Torpedo that they made a far better version of. And Bomber as well, which was a version of, um, oh my gosh. Yes, I I saw the post. (laughs) I can't remember what it was either. Why do I not know? (laughs) Depth Charge. It wasn't Depth Charge, was it? No, Good God! What was it? The sideways scrolling, scroll to the right. I, I'm, I'm scramble. 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 Yeah, scramble. Yeah. Scramble. Yeah. Scramble. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. Got there. Well done. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Alan. we're getting old, aren't we? This the uh... yeah. I was well. I was actually going to come on to Al. I, I say I was going to come on to Alka. I was going to. I was going to mention that. But so you know, go ahead. Yeah. Tell us about Alka. Okay, so if you think about Alka being this mm. this thoroughbred company that's really been 
uh, created by cherry picking the very best people in the UK industry. So there was Jeff Ellis, who had come from uh, Mayfield, who was essentially expert engineer at making electromechanical games. And then you've got Michael Green, who is the best salesman. And then you've got Marty Bromley lurking in the shadow, dumping cash into their lap. So he goes over, he buys a load of these machines, they build them, and Alka beat Atari to the British market by about four months. So Atari right. is still saying, right. you know, should we call it Wimbledon? Should we call it this, that, the other? And Alka have been selling, you know, hundreds of uh, ping pong machines. So that that's the beginning of the um, the video game industry. And then things real in the UK, and then things really heat up uh, when we get to the um, the early 1980s and um, you, you really have an absolute scramble that anyone who wants to make a video game can. So you and I would go and buy a bunch of boards, we'd find someone who makes kitchen cabinets and away we go. So yeah, that, that's where it, it begins. And then of course, you've got the uh, Tipperary plant as well, churning out yep. machines up in... Um, of course, Atari for Atari Island, right? Just, just, just for some positioning yeah. for our listeners as well. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so many of the games we found, you know, many of the games were licensed from overseas. And as again, we've also mentioned, we've spoken to Andy Walker here on the show before, and you've explained who Andy Walker is yourself as well. Um, what about other UK based manufacturers who were actually, you know, who actually did the whole thing from start to finish? Um, you know, designing, building and distributing video games on these shores. We we don't really have an Atari or a Williams, do we? We we really kind of piggybacked on uh, what was available overseas. Am I am I right in um in, in making that statement? Well, we, we did have manufacturers, didn't we? Because we, we had companies like um well who did we have? We had Century, we had we had other places that started making machines, but but essentially, you know, Sub Electro they, mm. they worked at making games. So but well, I, I, this is where I need my all my notes around me. But, 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 but essentially, what we had was uh, an early. So, Zelec and Zenitone are probably the most famous. Um, Go on, company. Yeah. So, Zelec, Zenitone, they made things like Blueprint. Um, so, that, so there were several games okay, that were made in England during that yes. period of time that were then yes. so Blueprint, Checkman, uh, things like that that were then exported and did quite well in Japan and in America. So, they they mm-hmm. got these these licenses, but. I think, and you'll get this from from talking with Andy Walker as well, that what happened in the UK was that this market became fairly depressed by, well, 1982. And, you know, the Commodore 64 and the home computing scene just seemed like such a breath of fresh air that, um, you know, computer or home computer development was just much more immediately profitable for them. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, no conversation about the British arcade British arcade scene would be complete without referencing bootlegs, as we've touched upon. And mm. as a personal anecdote, my my uncle ran a route for well, he ran a I'm actually not sure what kind of company he ran, but he ran a, a route as far as I know for a local working for local working men's clubs and other venues in and around Warwickshire, um, supplying and servicing arcade games and fruit machines, etc. And one of my very first arcade experiences was actually outside an arcade. Uh, playing a bagman bootleg board in a generic cocktail cabinet. I mean, to be fair, it could well have been an original Validum PCB, um, but I have a memory of him talking about being a cheap knockoff or a bootleg. I remember him. I remember him talking about. Um, so yeah, that was certainly my first experience of arcades. And then I kind of graduated and, and found myself playing playing other things. Um, 
I mean, for the uninitiated, can you kind of sort of, um, can you explain what a bootleg video game actually is? I mean, obviously 99% of our listeners will know what we're talking about, but maybe not everybody. And we like to, uh, we like to speak to the masses. Yeah. So a, a bootleg video game is, if, if you think within any one of these arcade cabinets, you'll have a, a PCB. So a big green board with a bunch a of printed chips circuit on it. board. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a printed circuit board with a bunch of green, sorry, a green printed circuit board with a, with <laughs> 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 these machines have printed circuit boards in them. And yes. uh, yeah, the, the idea is that you should buy them from an official distributor. It should, all the chips and the boards should come from the manufacturer in likely in Japan or have a nice uh, sort of proprietary stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it'll have a nice foil sticker on it, and it'll have, the money will go to the right places. But then, what would happen? In fact, the story about um, ping pong shows you that what you would also have, in addition to uh, things like um, uh, companies or factories making a surplus and then selling them through alternate routes, you'd also have people copying these boards mm. you, because mm. because the thing is that all of these components are standardized you just need to copy the little bit that has the the specific code and then you might choose that to change some of the chips instead or you might have an old game that runs on effectively the same hardware as a new game and someone will sell you the chips to replace so what you have is all these additional layers of unofficial routes of getting hold of games so they're either direct copies or they're unauthorized upgrade chips confusingly you could also get upgrade kits that are authorized and and really it's a bit of a free-for-all and you don't really know what is in the machine or whether or not it's legitimate unless you open up that machine have a look at the boards and actually it it got so bad in the uk that at trade fairs um lots of uh manufacturers enabled anton pillar uh awards not awards uh, anton pillar um clauses it meant effectively you if you were exhibiting games at a trade fair the manufacturers could force you to open the machines and they could inspect the boards to see so hold, sorry sorry hang on anton pillar is that is that actually is that is that the name of somebody or actually like a legal um, i i I, th- like... I think it's named after someone but it but it's a, a legal it's a name after um, anton deck it is it's anton deck's pillar it was <laughs> ah, a game that they had once upon a time yeah. no, but, <laughs> as, as, <laughs> For yeah. our American audiences regarding Anton Deck. You can Google it, Google it, Google it. Sorry, Alan, carry, yes, carry sorry. on. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. Well, I, Alan, let let me start I'm again. So sorry. It's quite all right. It's quite all right. So what, what happened was that the, the trade newspapers spoke all the time about an Anton Pillar order. There we go. I've got the phrase correct now. So an yep. Anton Pillar effectively says, we can take these things away from you and we can secure them you can't make any money off them, and then we can take you to court. So mm. I think that effectively the issue was under British law, you can't always seize things, or there is some kind of restriction about what you can seize. But an, mm. an Anton Pillar order was um, the kind of thing that would be used against people operating uh, kind of copied games or bootlegs or things like that. But yeah, at trade fairs, there are several instances where uh, a manufacturer like Sega would go directly up to people uh, advertising either copied boards or bootlegs or knockoffs or or hacks of games 
They would issue mm. them with the Anton pillar. The uh, police would then seize all of the um, the merchandise, and then that company would be uh, sued and taken to court. Of course, the company would fold, and that would be the end of that. I don't know what we were even talking about now. All I can hear is Anton Deck. No, um, no. <laughs> well, that that's amazing. I mean, I was very naively operating under the assumption that it was far more of a Wild West with regard to uh, at least IP. Um, and things of that nature, but it sounds like it was uh, far more heavily policed um, yeah. than, than than I realised. It, it, it was it was largely a wild west, but I think okay. I think what the issue sure. was was that there was such a, a proliferation of these copies and these these different routes in that the industry was yeah. desperately trying to find a way of, of of dealing with it, and this was just one of them. I don't know how much was was real or how much was substantive and how much was just. Um, trying to report things in the press in order to give people the impression that there was um, some legitimate comeback. So some people right. that I've spoken to who are involved in the, like this. Um, the kind of copy trade, would they said one of them said that uh, he hid in the toilets in one of the trade fairs and someone would slide money under the cubicle to him <laughs> and then he would oh, yeah. either kind of slide the boards back the other way or they'd then go and pick up the stuff from... Um, yeah, from out the van at the. Uh, this the is car. brilliant. I, this is brilliant. <laughs> I love this. And, and this Excellent. person also said that. Well, actually, I better not say that. That's. Um, I won't say that. But uh, they, let's just put it this way: they made a colossal amount of money. Yeah, sure. I mean, just just going back to the IP. I mean, surely intellectual property law at the time was light years behind this new sort of you know video craze from the future. Is that is that fair to say? Well, it it was and it wasn't. So in America. I think in 1981, there was the Star Castle uh, court case that proved that um, copyright applied to, uh, yeah, effectively the code on those chips. So therefore, you couldn't Mm. manipulate them. If you did so, you were breaching copyright and then could get in trouble. But in the UK, that didn't really happen until, um, well, 1982. And it was Sega versus John Richards, who's... Um, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's he's an amazing, amazing person to talk to. Yeah, I've heard of him. So let, let me tell you about what... what like, so John started off as a, uh, a disc jockey. So 1970s yes. disc jockey. He went to college. He did kind of electrical engineering. He dropped out because they weren't teaching him fast enough. Now, he, he used to be a DJ for a bunch of London clubs, including one of the clubs that a bunch of the... Um, arcade industry kind of guys either owned or were affiliated with and where they had their their kind of Christmas dues and things like that. So he, he knew a lot of people in the early arcade scene. And uh, I, I think he started working for London Coin, a kind of an, an influential distributor. And um, he, he, he said he wasn't very good at distributing because he was always scared of driving. And he had a, his first job was driving a huge van full of um, fruit machines up to Leeds in the fog. Scared he he, as in as in like phobic or scared as well, in... Well, I, I think it was just he was driving all the way up to the north in in a pea super, such a, a thick fog that he, he was worried he was going to crash. He came back and I think they sacked him actually. But uh, but but anyway, the um, what, what happened with this this guy was he really understood electronics and he, he um, basically he found a load... Of, so when these... Ping pong and these pong machines were around. Nobody knew how to fix them because people involved in the trade were mm. salesmen. You know, there were larger than life kind of um, geezers who would sell stuff and make profits and bring people the right machines. They didn't really have the technical support. They had woodworkers and engineers and stuff like that. And um, and uh, yeah, John Richards was from a, a different kind of uh, way of thinking. 
he um, knew someone who worked at London Coin, and they, he showed him one day the stack of pong boards that they they had. So if you bought a ping pong machine, quite often you'd buy two boards and one machine because. Firstly, the electrics were rubbish, so the boards would fail quite quickly. Yeah. And then when they failed, nobody knew what to do with them, yeah. so you just plugged a new one in. Anyway, John Richards realised that it was they were very easy to fix, and so he would charge um, this company quite a bit of money to do a rudimentary fix, and then he kind of upgraded to making his own games. He said that he spent one fever night mapping out all of uh, Breakout, and then he designed his own version of Breakout through making sense of the electronics. So I, I think his story needs to be told in much greater detail because- Let's um, get him on the show, Richie. Why don't we get him on the show? He should do, he should yes. do. The other thing, he's got a fantastic archive. So he's he's got, still he's still got that sheet where he drew out everything. Yeah. So he, and he's got all this stuff. So he rings me up every now and then, and we, we have a chat and he'll say, oh, I've got you this uh, schematics book from th this chip. And I say, well, why would you have that? He said, well, this is how I learned how to program this chip. I learned, they tell you how to do everything. And I say, how did you even get this? He said, well, I just used to ring up the chip manufacturers and harass them until one of their scientists would send me one. So this this guy could have been, could have been a Nolan Bushnell. Alan, you, we've just touched on it a little bit in, in that section, is that I'm fascinated why... Here in Britain, there's no doubt we've had, or we had the talent that's made some of the best and best-selling computer and video games in the world, and, and we continue to do so. Why do you think, then, that there wasn't the equivalent of an Atari or a Tato here in Britain? Because presumably it wasn't for the lack of coding talent, as we can see in the home market. So what why did that never happen for us? It's a really good question. And, I, you know, I've, I've thought about this a bit. And I, <laughs> I suppose that's the way. I've thought about it a bit. Um, <laughs> I, I, the kind of thing that I come to is it, it comes back to that thing about gambling. I, so, for instance, um, I think it was Xenotone or is it Zilek? A bunch of the guys there. Well, even Andy Walker, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the pathway was you got interested in making arcade video games. You produced some, they did quite well. And then you also made fruit machines. So Andy Walker up until a couple of years ago, yeah, worked on Carnaby making, Carnaby, Carnaby industrial estate, making fruit machines and gambling machines. I yeah. think that they are more lucrative. I think that they are more socially accepted hmm. in the UK, even if there are parts of the population that see them as a negative thing i think they they still have some broad social acceptance and i i just wonder if yeah. um yeah. they people just strayed into where there was better money because you can still do playful design there's still great pleasure to be had playing those games yes um, of course of course and i mean mention andy walker you know apart from you <laughs> he's one of the few uh brits that we we've had on the show but he talks about you know not being able to compete with your Ataris, um, but you could compete in the home market. So he went on to make Commodore 64 home games as well. However, let's point out there were a few games designed and coded here in Britain. Tell us about, which I believe is the kind of first one you said in your book, which is Invader's Revenge from 1981 by Zenito. Now, are you counting this as an original title or is this sort of more in the elaborate well, hack. Th this uh, one, it, it's tricky because 
uh, okay, how should we how should we approach this? So there was the video game group, which was again um, uh, a chap called Freddie Bailey, uh, who was quite influential during this period of time. He was instrumental in um, no, he wasn't instrumental. He, he was he was important within the video game scene in in Britain at that point. So he famously he went over to Japan for the uh, big trade fair there. He ran a massive party got all of the other uh, distributors drunk at, at the party. He then went out of the party to another suite in the hotel. Hey, oh. And he, uh, yeah, he, he he went to sleep. And then it meant that he was up nice and early the next day. And he managed to land all of the Nintendo Space Firebirds. I think it was 250 of them. He flew them. He chartered a jumbo jet to fly them back and had sold them before they'd landed. So th- this guy, again, was... Uh, a, a pioneer, an entrepreneur, a bit of a, a, a wide boy as well. Um, but he he had a company called Video Game or Game World Group even. Video Game? Okay. Game World Group. It's Game World Group is, is what it was called. But um, yeah, th- this 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 was a, a an operating company, but it also moved into manufacture. Now, things went a bit strange with that company. Uh, it's so it had a major warehouse. It was a, a major, major distributor. It funded the development of um, well, it actually funded the development of looping. You know the um, so that was oh yes. yeah that game looping. Game. I don't know who made it. It was a, yeah. it was distributed by Romstar. Crazy flying game, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah so yeah. so they were involved. It might have been the localization of it or something like that, but not just a a standard. We buy the license, we'll make it. There there was. Um, actually involved in the coding and the um, the kind of localization of it, from what I understand. Uh, and Invader's Revenge was another game that um, was was related to to this company. Now, things got a bit strange that their warehouse burnt down, including Freddie Bailey's collection of fruit machines. <laughs> Sorry, this isn't, this is not an insurance job, is it? Is I'm, that I'm what not, you're hinting I'm, at? Not, I'm definitely not hinting at that. I'm hinting at something else, but not the insurance job. No, so, okay. Um, okay. Well, I, I've got the feeling that 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 perhaps he. Oh, no, I don't know. I I I will stop there. That's the smart <laughs> thing to do. Okay, okay. If you, if Canterbury University gets burnt down, we'll know that we've touched yeah. on something. Yeah, uncomfortable there. Okay. And um, I, you've done amazing research on games that were made in in Britain because, like you say, it is we are probably talking a handful. And you point out too from nineteen eighty one Enigma two. And check, man. Now, for our um, listeners, uh, if you've never heard of those, and I must admit I haven't, is that you can play them on main if uh, if you're prepared to use that. Uh, tell us a little bit about those titles because they were developed here in Britain. They were. They were. I, to be honest, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't say a lot um, uh, because if, if I'm honest, that part of the book is kind of my my least my least exciting bit because it it never really went anywhere. In in the sense that um, yeah. you know these development yeah, teams right. then moved into fruit machines and into home gaming, but yeah, I, I, you know the games were exciting, and then you play them and you think, oh, hang about, I it's a, a strange, stompy kind of game, and then they're not really very impressive in terms of their their design as as far as I'm I'm concerned. That is fair enough. Yes, I played Enigma two and that sort of left right shoot kind of thing. Uh, Checkmate's quite interesting. If any of our readers played. A Commodore 64 game called Grid Trap. It's a kind of base yeah. on that kind of idea. It's kind of interesting. Let's let's just before we leave this, uh, is that let's pick up some games. Because the interesting thing is, eventually, 
these kind of coalesce right. into well eventually it becomes rare doesn't it so we get the stamper brothers involved in well that was it is blueprint which you mentioned earlier and that was a stamper brothers game uh, and of course they went on to produce some fantastic stuff on spectrum and and later for rare on nintendo consoles but i i'm kind of interested that so they produce a really good game blueprint andy walker produces a really good game the pit and yet both of those, they had to go abroad for them to be manufactured yeah. and distributed. Was that just inevitable then? Well, I, I think it probably was, wasn't it? We we didn't have the chip manufacturing. Well, no, that's a lie because we could import them. If, like everyone who was interested in this had mm. their own chip burners by that point. So you could effectively, you'd buy a, a, a chip that you could write to and then you could erase it with UV light and people had them. So... There was Ooh. no major obstacle, but um, yeah, I, I don't know what quite stopped it from happening. That's fascinating. Now, there is one company I want to ask you about, which you just mentioned earlier on, is Century Electronics. Mm. Now, they did make original games. I mm. coded and designed them, and they manufactured them. They're the nearest thing they that are, we've got. And they're to, hardware pioneers as well, aren't they? Absolutely. And the guy, I think Pete Robinson, I had the pleasure of talking uh, to for Retro Gamer because they produced probably their best known games, Hunchback, which again, I'd like to think our listeners have probably heard of. Did you, you know, did you find out much about Century Electronics? Because it seems a bit of a, a bit of an, a bit of a one off really. In this yeah, well, well, in the, um, in kind of my, my database of stuff they, they certainly featured and they featured really quite loudly you know with their cvs content and things like that so they de developed hardware they became very well regarded within the industry but then again they they kind of quietened down i think they also did a little bit of work in the fruit machine area and then they they also shift into um kind of home computing as well so it's it's this story time and time again that um that this, mm -hmm. this kind of blows up and then, yeah. then disappears. But I, I think probably, uh, of course, aside from things like Hunchback, the, the, the hardware is really important as well. The fact they're willing to, to invest in, in hardware and, and try new ways of doing things. You just but, mentioned CVS there, and uh, which is very keen that we don't let, um, uh, what's it, acronyms hang there. So what ooh, do you mean by I don't know what it stands for. It's probably something like the Century <laughs> Video Game System or something like that. But it, it, it ah, essentially okay. allowed games to be swapped more easily. Ah. So, that's interesting. So pre, this is pre-Jammer that we perhaps come on to. Uh, I think Jammer's the Japanese arcade manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well done. We're definitely, we're definitely not going to leave any acronyms hanging there. Um, so anyway, uh, that's interesting that the hardware style, the hardware we, we pioneered, but maybe didn't quite kick off with the software, which brings us nicely on what we were good at doing in Britain is, is, is making things. So let's just ask you a little bit about the role of Atari Island. Mm. Um, before I go further, do you, is that an area that you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, yeah, but by all means. Again, it, it frankly, it's not something I'm. 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 Well, no, let's let's just talk about it. <laughs> we've had Kev, we've had Kevin Hayes. Oh, right. who was instrumental in setting up that here on, on the on the podcast. So, but, I mean, perhaps you know, it's by your understanding, is that what you know what brought a Californian company, Atari, what 
brought them over across the pond to our uh, to our little island. What what factors? Well, we may have been a, a little island, but we were a major major arcade destination. So we were the gateway to Europe. We uh, were the the well potentially the second most mature arcade um, industry at, at one point. Um, well, no, that's a mm. lie, isn't it? We, we, we were the third. We, we were never the second. It was, it was a worth, worthwhile try. But, you know, if what you were thinking about was reliable income, if you're thinking about a, a relatively safe kind of, um, well, a relatively safe government approach to arcades, why would you not set up here? If you're talking about English language as well, mm. it just makes it easy as a as an alternate yeah, base. Yeah. So uh, the reason why it went into Ireland, I, that I don't, quite understand but i'm assuming tax that um they yes i was going to say massive tax breaks yes yep. it was a uh, high employment at that time i think the irish government did a, did a lot to encourage atari to arrive but, but I we, we also had manufacturing here though didn't about... we because brent walker yeah. brent walker did manufacturing i think it was in dagenham so so we had um sega mm. were based in well sega became sega were were bought out by Cromptons for a while. So Sega Europe was based in Ramsgate oh. for, for quite a while. And they, they moved their manufacturing into Essex and also did some in Ramsgate as well. So so that's, yeah. So if we've got some of the big players, Atari and Sega, is this something to do with the fact that they recognised that there was all these sort of bootleggers and pirated games getting into to Europe? So it was like, we better set up somewhere so we can get kind of our official releases in there was it was it a kind of anti-piracy thing that that pushed well the, the sega thing was a, a bit different because um sega struggled with the fact that the yen was so strong that building something in japan mm. and shipping it over here just became incredibly expensive so you, it re reached a point where mm -hmm. the 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 japanese arcade industry was almost strangling itself it, it, it couldn't shift its products because the yen was so uh such high value stuff which yeah. is too expensive so we reached a point where, well, for instance, afterburner machines, the large afterburners were being built in mm -hmm. England and then shipped to Japan because of the differential of, um, yeah, or at least that, really? that's what they said <laughs> quite loudly in the in the, the trade press, whether how many actually that happened to, I don't, I don't know, but it just became so expensive that if you had a, if you had a company based in England with our weak pound, it was a, a great opportunity and certainly by the, the 90s. That's, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of Atari machines, Tony's explained this to me, is that a lot of Atari machines that end up in America were actually made in Ireland and then it was, must have been cheaper to fly them back over to the to the states it all sounds like things were going quite well then in the early 80s what went wrong you've alluded to the uk crash perhaps you could tell us a bit about about what happened in that period yeah i, I don't think it's desperately different from the american crash so years ago maybe i don't know eight years ago I, I wrote an academic paper when i was saying there was no british crash we were all fine there was no opposition to arcades either <laughs> it's funny how you know, in hindsight, you realise you say a load of old guff. But um, uh, yeah, what what happened was that really people got greedy. So you and I might decide to set up a, a company. We might, um, yeah, we might. Well, no, let's let's calm down a bit. What what really happened was that there was very very <laughs> aggressive selling of video game boards. So people were saying that they would receive. Yeah unsolicited phone calls, you know, maybe seven times a day with people offering them boards for sale. So video games that you could buy, mm -hmm. they would ship them over. And that would include buying them at wholesale rates. So yeah, if you want to buy 50 
uh, jail breaks. We can do that and it will cost you no money. They'll be overflown <laughs> over to you. You'll get them in seven days time. And basically people decided that that would be something that they would do. So there was a, a proliferation of, um, of video games. There were lots of companies building video games. And, and really there was a saturation of machines around the UK. Every chip shop, every cafe, every working That's men's true, club had yeah. a game. And it wasn't that they were all bad games, but when there are more games, that's more slots to put your 10Bs in and the, the takes just reduced. Yeah. Now, what happened was that a chap called John Stagides, who is the managing director of Electrocoin, you know, a big uh, major um, okay. UK okay. distributor and, man and manufacturer, the, they ended up going into partnership with with Capcom and really kind of heralded the the Japanese expansion or the Japanese relationship with British arcades. But what John Stagides did was he um, he took JAMA, who you, you introduced, to task, so the Japanese um, arcade organization, and said, if you don't sort this out, if you don't police your, your borders, as it were, and that includes uh, uh, kind of bootlegs and grey imports and all this kind of stuff, if you don't do that, uh, you will kill the industry, you'll kill the British industry, and it will kill the mm. European industry because we are your hub. And he, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe, um, in terms of it was kind of a, a war of letters mm. in the trade press, and he did begin to bring about some change because the kind of issues were happening that because of the, well, what would happen is that a game would be released in Japan, maybe it was released in January of a year, and then it would finally be released in England maybe in August. Now, there was such a great turnover of arcade machines or arcade games in Japan that come July, you'd be offered um, secondhand boards from Japan before the game had even been officially released in England and far cheaper than the, the version would be in, in England. So there was all this, this absolutely terrible kind of um, lack of control. And essentially, it led to a proliferation of... Of, of boards. We, we also had a, a horrible situation. I think it was with Jailbreak, actually. And uh, what happened was that um, a load of boards were dumped on the British market really, really cheap. So beneath wholesale prices. And th this was after it had been right. negotiated with Japan. So the official distributor was effectively saying, we can't even sell them at those prices. That's less than we've paid for them. And then it turned out that they hadn't come from um, exporters or grey importers, that it had come from the European distributors, the official European distributor that had dumped them on the British market because it was larger, because they thought it would not sell. So but by the, the kind of... Um, early to mid 80s the whole market is is falling apart and had we not had fruit machines had we not had penny pushers mm. i think we would have had the scorched earth of uh american arcades so there wouldn't be any arcades left in england but because those arcade owners have made their money over decades and decades because the british arcade was based upon low stakes gambling as well as video games we had the resilience and could weather the storm. And that's why we still have video games and arcades, because we we had the resilience. That's amazing. All down to those little two pence penny pushers. Oh, it really is. It really is. So arcade owners have said that they were the backbone of the arcade for 30 years. Well, I should actually say before Tony comes in, is that whenever I go to the sea any seaside arcade, contemporary seaside, seaside arcade, try saying that, easy for you to say, contemporary seaside arcade 
now my kids always gravitate towards the uh, the penny pushers before they want to play on i mean i've taken them to arcade club over here in in, in the uk which is like a retro themed arcade um and they like that but they still you know we go to the arcade and they 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 want to play this they want to play the penny pushers and that stuff's been around for um, invented in 1966 in Ramsgate, so two miles away from where I live, by Cromptons. They never patented it because they didn't think they had to. Oh, really? Really? And they they also, you know what they also like is when we happen to find one, is that that the horse racing thing sort of... Whitaker's Derby, yeah. Yes, that, yes, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting really, we're sort of like diving deeply now, aren't we? Um, Sorry, Tony, Um, it's definitely your turn. Um, Alan, I wonder if we could just take another sort of um, handbrake turn and just mm. talk very briefly about a company, uh, Streets. Streets in, of Eastbourne. Um, who are based here in the UK. Now, Streets of Eastbourne, I've I've owned a few of their cabs over the years. Um, they were a, a relatively small player, um, as you say, based in Eastbourne. But somehow along the way, they managed to secure a legit relationship with Williams of uh, Chicago in the USA, obviously, where they um, licensed and distributed uh, spangly versions of Defender, Stargate and um, Robotron in, in, in some very distinctive looking cabinets. What's, what's their story? Well, Streets of Eastbourne, uh, the Streets family have been involved in arcades since the early, early days. So it was the Streets brothers, if I remember correctly, who were involved in, well, from about the early 1900s. So they've, they've got a long, long lineage in the arcade trade. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I don't think they came from a showman tradition. I think they came from kind of a, a manufacturing tradition and then went into operating. But... So, so think about streets as being almost part of the the woodwork. They are um, a long-established manufacturing company that that made electromechanical arcade machines and operated arcades. So they they didn't get huge, but they were well, they were considered a, a reliable, trustworthy manufacturer of of machines. Kind of much like Cromptons, but actually mm-hmm. they existed before Cromptons, and they were kind of eclipsed by Cromptons. Now, I, I think that the the Williams link is a bit of a red herring in in the sense that okay I I one of the chaps that I I interviewed was was Colin Mallory so again he lives a couple of miles away from me he was the chap that negotiated the um well he, in fact he was the guy that negotiated defender into the UK so he um he negotiated the deal for defender he also negotiated the deal for the sit down star wars machine that he went to the the big Spangly do, and he um, so the the trade fair, the unveiling of Star Wars. He didn't like it, but his daughter did, and so he decided to import it into into the UK, and it was one of the best things he ever did. Anyway, he he told me that he was working for Associated Leisure at this time, and Associated Leisure uh, were the distributor for Williams, and because he negotiated the streets, def- sorry, the Defender deal. He knew that they could get as many boards as they wanted, but one of the issues that was proving a problem for them was getting the marquees and getting all of the hardware made. So because Associated Leisure had recently negotiated the purchase of streets, the logical step was that they would then run a, um, well, they they created essentially uh, a machine called Streets Defender that had the streets branding and it was a Defender machine. You had official uh, Williams uh, board inside it. 
and essentially that was what they did and then mm -hmm. that that continued a little while longer now streets closed not that long after that so it was really streets had been bought by associated leisure and that that was how that happened so it wasn't that this little old eastbourne company forged a link with um, williams it was that this massive company associated associated leisure had bought them out and then had used their connections to expand their line that's interesting i really like their their logo on those um williams machines it's um i think it's a sort of streets on one yeah. side williams on the other and in the middle is like a like a drawn handshake it's so cool isn't it to, yeah, brilliant. It's just like to, to just to sort of make it clear that you know this is this is a, a legit, genuine. Yeah. Something else product, to say is you know, that Shane um, Brakes, um, who you you might know, hmm. was the managing director of Streets for quite some time. So Shane went on to be, well, what was he? He was like a, a second in command of Atari. So he moved over to the states. Yeah, Kevin, I think has referenced again. He also time. came from Ramsgate. So this is the strange world that I live in. That. All these movers and shakers either grew up or were born or were linked to a place two miles down the road from me where Cromptons were based. Amazing. That's oh, just super interesting. Um, and briefly, we, we mentioned Jammer. Um, I, I just wonder if we could just touch on that very briefly. I mean, we, we're horrible snobs here on the podcast where we, we, we sort of very rarely mention the Jammer industry standard, which, which is probably became fairly ubiquitous in UK arcades when I got a job and um, had to, you know, not go to arcades as often as I as I used to. But um, that idea of being able to buy a single machine and then buy another printed circuit board um, of the Jammer industry standard and you know, pull out the old board and plug in, plug in a new board and you've got a whole new game at, at a fraction of what it used to cost where you had to go out and buy a whole machine that must have had a, a huge impact on the arcade yeah. scene here in well, the UK you're, you're golden age purists so you, you like your bespoke cabs whereas mm. I like skanky uh, cigarette burnt smelly electric oil goliaths that, <laughs> that's kind of my my frame of reference so right. I I, I was just going to come in there and say, yeah, Tony and Paul uh, being of uh, a slightly rarer vintage than myself, I'm probably more... Rare as in better. Yeah, 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 basically. <laughs> and, and much like yourself, Alan, I, I, I grew up playing Final Fight in a very smoky back room of Venus videos in Sutton and Ashfield in Nottinghamshire. So I'm uh, I'm, I'm slightly younger and uh, I, 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 you know, we share some common ground. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of Jammer. And how, how about this? I'll say something really horrible. The thing I like about a, a bespoke cabinet is when someone has uh, used a roller to just paint it black over the, uh, <laughs> the nice light screen printing. So I'll oh, get out. Yeah, that's a, that, that, been, that's the kind of thing that Alex at Arcade Archive and people like Tony uh, spend spend hours sort of like peeling peeling off and, right. and and finding different solvents to dissolve. De said deconverting classic arcade. Deconverting, yes. Classic. Well, that's that's it's been great having you on. Thanks. Um, yeah, but it's 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 interesting that um, uh, uh, you know the introduction of Jammer kind of sort of moved the industry on from the old model of okay, you know the kids aren't playing Asteroids anymore. I've got to go and buy a new complete machine and you know st stuff the Asteroids in the back or stick it in a warehouse or put it in an old old barn or something. Whereas the the ability to just you know simply swap out that one component. Um, which you know shared common control systems 
with with the previous game did deliver a greater variety of mm. games to the end yeah. user. Yeah, and the experience was often pretty shoddy though. How many times did I play a game and you'd never know wh- whether the buttons were actually connected? Sometimes, like, like that was. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it was part of the fun. It wasn't. It was horrible. It was it was frustrating. So I think think Jammer did lead yeah, to. Right. Uh, some operators being really very lazy with their product. You know, those times where you would find a machine, like a, a arcade machine or a video game, just in the corner somewhere, like in a, in a shopping center or in a cafe, and it, you didn't know whose it was or how it kind of worked. And yeah, I, I think I think there probably is a kind of a bit of a sadness that that is introduced that the games become less important, less mm. of a thing, more of just an aside. You've mentioned the company Cromptons um, uh, right right from the start, and we've we've referenced it throughout the throughout this entire show. Um, but let's let's bring you back to Cromptons and let's talk about them specifically. A key industry player whose brand was uh, you know plastered throughout the British seaside arcades of our youth. But you know when the three of us were prepping for our chat, we could only recall them as manufacturers of Flipper Winner. Right? Is that is yeah. that? I have no memory of Flipper Winner. Um, is this is this something I'm missing? Something I'm overlooking? Well, here? if if I remember, it's a pretty impressive looking machine. It has all these weird kind of prongs that spin around, and the coins flip up when you you do things. So, it, the thing about these pushers and these machines, these Crompton's machines, is is the kind of the physical spectacle of play. It's pretty cool putting a coin in and seeing it yes, ping around, yes. and and so they're very shiny, they're very spangly, and I, I think that we should just open ourselves up to that in a way like my kids love them my kids love the way that they they look the way they move and same and, and, yes as we mentioned you know yeah, I, yeah. I think that we um well i think that we like games we like proper games but there's still something pretty cool about the spectacle of just seeing things pinging around and moving and cromptons were just ace at making this kind of stuff and yeah flip a winner great sure sure um and I, I mean, just to kind of tie up as well, I'm, I'm still, um, I was really touched, um, I guess is the right word, by your mention of, you know, Howard, the arcade manager, right at the very top, and I guess your very own Mr. Litwack. Um, it, it, it's great that you remember um, this particular fella. Of course, <laughs> yeah. To just, this is off the record, this is off the record kind of, because I will obviously edit this, but like I've kind of, I found myself... Um, unlike many of our interviews where I'm kind of just waiting for my turn to talk I've actually genuinely found myself kind of sort of like captivated by listening to you as though I'm listening to somebody else's podcast and and I've kind of lost lost my um I've I've genuinely lost my train of thought and ability to wrap this up so (laughs) you you have but you have been recording this haven't you please but that's your job well that's fine so yeah no no it's all it's all it's all recorded I'm not I'm not stressed about that but it's uh, legitimately I it's um it's an honor to have you on and it's um i've just really really thoroughly enjoyed listening to you um you know regalers with um with all these uh, anecdotes and stories it's well, it's amazing well thank you for having me it's, it's it's just a real pleasure to have this kind of conversation anyway oh we're doing a podcast as well i didn't didn't quite realize there is that yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's something. perhaps you this might be a good opportunity is that tell yes. our listeners where they can get hold of your book alan okay well you know, I'm very lucky that the book was published with MIT Press and they, they handle everything. So that means the book is available on Amazon or all good yeah. bookshops and all that, that kind Yay. of stuff. But um, yeah, just just Google Arcade Britannia and it, it will probably pop up. I, th- I think it certainly will. I'd just like to say th- thank you as well. I really like the bit you pointed out that when we talk about the golden age 
of arcades, which is what this podcast focuses on. You said that's actually the age of arcades is that there isn't some bit kind of either side of it when it comes to to Britain, um, which I thought was a very good point. And the fact that if it wasn't for those little gambling machines, we probably wouldn't have had this amazing scene here in in Britain that we always remember because of the arcade machine, the video games. But actually what was keeping that going was those people putting 2p in penny pushers and in slot machines. So when I've interviewed some pretty old owners they've said that their view was that the gold well it's kind of like each generation says they have a different golden age but i've had people say well there was nothing like the arcade in the 30s the pin table craze in the 30s <laughs> was something else so Amazing. it's been the 30s has been said as a, a, a key point another one said the 60s they said there was nothing like the 60s when when that law came in and there was just the rampant expansion of arcades that was the real brilliant time a few people have said that that, that video games brought something very different to the arcade yes yes. it became a much younger and um so the canes family who run canes amusements over in home bay who actually uh there's a, a a great book that came out recently by angela catherine kane which is called deptford showground the last permanent fairground in london i've got it on my desk and it's 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 fantastic it gives a a kind of an intimate glimpse into the traveling showman tradition before the arcade all about the family of the canes who who run all those um, arcades but they they said that the 1980 the early 80s mm. the arcades changed in such a brilliant way and um when i talk to them they say that, that you know they're still running the arcades but something has something has changed so they recognized there was something very special mm. about that mm. that golden era mm. yeah and likewise i mean it's just an absolute delight to have you on and and i think I think our, our our conversation, I hope, is a, is a perfect example of of what this podcast is all about, and and that's just kind of context, really. I mean, as as a you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old kid going to arcades, obviously, I just took it all for granted, and even now, probably took an awful lot of it for for granted. But to hear the history of arcades and some of the characters involved um, is it just just brilliant, and for us to be able to shine a light on the British arcade scene. Um, has been an absolute delight. Um, and you're aware, a rare beast, Alan, and it's been a, an honour to have you on. Thank you very much. Oh. A magnificent beast. And yeah, just to kind of like bring Magnific- it full circle, and, and just one of the things I was really fascinated about was indeed the um, uh, the distinction between this, you know, kind of a North American mythic arcade of... Um, of, um, of of Tron, you know, neon lights, and uh, as Paul said, you know, guys hanging around with heavy metal T-shirts and and their girlfriends, etc. Um, and it's that's obviously where we find ourselves concentrating on, I guess, the most because that's when you say arcade games, that's where people go to, don't they? They go to that kind of a mental image imbued by by movies and TV shows and that kind of eighties neon aesthetic, etc. But it's really fascinating to kind of, um, especially you know, kind of within this kind of like overall overall. Uh, umbrella of um of this kind of british aspect of everything we're talking about as well absolutely fascinating thank you so much really cool thank you you've been listening to the ted dabney experience podcast with me richard may retro gamer magazine's paul drury and arcade blogger tony temple the show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by ghost of wood Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank <laughs> you.